Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Our show is fascinating today. It's about how God changes your brain. And in a few minutes, you're going to see that that actually has something to do with privacy, since God is very private for each person. But first, let me tell you that this is Pledge Week. And as you know, our show is a nonprofit radio show at the University of California, Irvine. We get no funding from advertising and very little funding from the university, especially with, with this economy. So we must sustain the shows through an annual pledge drive. We only ask once a year. And I know you all understand how hard it is for nonprofits. But I also know that if you're listening to this show, you're interested in privacy. And to help us keep this show on the air, we ask that you donate anything you can, a small donation or a large donation, and give this as a tax-deductible donation for our show and for all of KUCI. So you can go online to KUCI.org and you can... Say you want to donate and follow the instructions there and say you're donating for the show Privacy Piracy. Or you can even call our office directly for a toll-free donation, and we will put it right into KUCI for you. And you can call at 800-725-0807, pay your credit card, and we will even work with you and see what kind of a pledge gift you can get, and we'll help you through that as well. Or you can send a check directly to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine Fund Drive. Just go to KUCI.org or call our office, and we'll help you and help to sustain this show and our wonderful other shows at KUCI. So now getting on to our show, this is an incredible book. I just read How God Changes Your Brain. Breakthrough Findings from a Leading Neuroscientist, and it's by Andrew Newberg, MD, and his co-author is Mark Robert Waldman. And we are so thrilled to be speaking with Mark Waldo uh, Waldman right now. Let me tell you a little bit about his fascinating background so you'll know who you're listening to. 
Mark Waldman is a therapist and an associate fellow at the Center for Spirituality and the Mind at the University of Pennsylvania. He currently conducts research with Andrew Newberg, MD, on the neurological correlations of belief, morality, compassion, meditation, religious experience, and spiritual practices. He's also an adjunct faculty at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, where he is developing communication tools for the executive MBA program. He frequently lectures at conferences, colleges, churches, and everything on the relationship of neuropsychology to stress, relaxation, emotional control, relationship dynamics, conflict resolution, and much more. In fact, his research has been featured in Time Magazine, Washington Post, Oprah Magazine, and Radio, and USA Today, the New York Times Science Section, and his interviews have appeared on dozens of radio and television programs, including Oprah and Friends. Mark happens to be the author of 11 books and anthologies, and his professional papers have been published throughout the world. And it's his new book that we're going to be talking about, co-authored with Dr. Newberg, How God Changes Your Brain, Breakthrough Findings by a Leading Neuroscientist. According to Time, Newsweek, and Washington Post, Mark and Andy are the world's leading experts on spirituality and the brain. And there's so much more you can learn about him at his own website, at markrobertwaldman.com and also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where we have his picture, we link to his website, we tell more about him and you can even find the archived interview as well. So thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. Well, Mark, this this is just fascinating. How is it that that you and Dr. Newberg came to write this book, How God Changes Your Brain? Both of us have been fascinated with the realms of spirituality and God from totally different aspects. He came to it from his medical profession and as a neuroscientist. I came through it uh, through the realms of both psychology and spirituality. I was involved with a spiritual organization that was extremely flawed, and it was very, very disturbing to me. This actually led me to review and study about 300 books a year for the transpersonal review in the areas of science, psychology, and religion. So when Andy and I teamed up, we both brought different kinds of experience to the field, and we've been working wonderfully together. Well, it's a fascinating book. I, I really enjoyed it. The, it's Even for my daughter, who is a senior at the University of California, Irvine, she was intrigued by it. So let's talk about how it relates to privacy. What happens with your private thoughts about God or spirituality? In general, we would have to say from the brain scan studies that we've done so far, that simply thinking about God or spirituality actually has very little effect upon the brain if it's simply a fleeting thought or an idea or you're reading about it in a book. But what we have found is that if you begin to contemplate or ruminate or focus on or meditate or intensely pray on any particular deep belief, sacred principle, idea, notion, even the word God itself or even a word like peace or compassion or love, 
you can begin to see some profound neurological changes take place in the human brain. Wow. So what's, what is the research that you did conduct? You know, what are some of the breakthrough findings in your research, and you know, how did you do it? Well, Andy began first with some uh, Buddhist practitioners, and what we do, we bring them into the hospital, we put them into a room, we use a type of brain scan technology called SPECT scans, and this has certain benefits in the fact that all you have to do is have an IV tube in your arm, and then you can engage in a deep spiritual practice without being disturbed. And then at a moment, maybe 45 minutes into the meditation, we can come in and just introduce a very uh, benign radioactive tracer that breaks down in your brain five minutes later, so we can capture the essence of that spiritual experience that you were in at that moment, and then you casually walk down the hallway to the brain scan machine, and you can actually take a nap on it for about 45 minutes while the scanner takes all kinds of pictures of your brain, and then we can go through and we can look to see how your brain changes at different times during these types of activities. So you actually see it on the scan. What is happening on that scan? On the on the on the uh, on, on the, the scan, yeah. We see. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll, what we what we have found so far, and this is kind of amazing, and we only know that this is true from these types of deep contemplation practices, and they can be religious or they can be secular. Like I said, you can just be focusing on in on peace for like twelve minutes a day, and we can find that you can have functional changes in some key elements of the brain that change the brain by as much as twenty five percent. And you can actually have structural changes in elements like the thalamus, which is our reality processing part of the brain, by 10%. I mean, these are the most powerful ways to literally alter the structure and function of your brain. Much more powerful than any medications that are out there. It, it is amazing. You know, when, and I hate to tell you how many years ago, but back in 1968, I took Transcendental Meditation and at that time, they were talking about all of the brain changes that would happen. And I have been meditating for all those years, not as, you know, as seriously or as often as I used to. I used to do twice a day. But I remember there were even research studies at Harvard about how, you know, blood pressure went down and heartbeat went slower. And they, they talked about the brain changes, but I don't think they were doing the kind of scans at that time or had the technology to really prove what you're proving now, but they were talking about it at the time. That is correct. And, and what we have found is that transcendental meditation is as good as a Hindu form of meditation or a Buddhist meditation. We see the same types of changes in the brain when we have Franciscan nuns doing a centering prayer. We even have the same types of changes in the brain when we take cognitively impaired individuals and we teach them a Hindu Sikh meditation where you basically chant Sata Nama. And we have improvements in memory. We see the same reward circuit in the brain lighting up. We see the same kinds of changes in the frontal lobes. In other words, our thinking is becoming more organized. We're becoming more focused. And we're seeing the most important thing is that we're seeing that these types of changes in the brain suppress the emotional parts of the brain that generate anxiety, depression, irritability, and fear. And then it also stimulates a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate. And this is where moral decision-making is made, where compassion is actually developed, where social awareness exists. 
So all of the accumulating evidence from our studies and from many other studies being done around the world show that these types of meditation practices actually help us to interact with other people more peacefully and more cooperatively. And, you know, I notice every time I meditate afterwards, I'm happier. So it must do something with my endorphins as well. I don't have to be running outside for a mile. I can sit down and meditate for 20 minutes or 15 minutes, and it seems like my endorphins must be out there because I'm, I'm so much happier. I feel better. Over two dozen forms of neurochemicals can be stimulated. And... But there's a big difference. This only happens when you're focusing on a positive belief or an optimistic uh, type of feeling or expression or idea. If you ruminate and meditate on something negative, you get the exact opposite takes place. You can actually damage uh, very important parts of your brain by focusing on anger or rage uh, or fear. Right. So is that reversible for someone who, let's say, is a very negative person who's been into, you know, focusing on hate and the bad economy and they, you know, they they hate their president, they hate this, they hate that, and they're constantly thinking of that. If they start focusing on the positive, does it reverse that brain uh, frequency? No, we can't say that. What we can say with a tremendous amount of certainty that the human brain is designed to pay far more attention to any negative thought or idea that we have. Hmm. And of course, this obviously relates to politics and privacy very much. You're very well. Somebody stands up and yells, no, believe it or not, in that one word that I just used, more stress neurochemicals got released in your brain than if I said, yes, 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 yes. Hmm. So... What, what we have to do, we look at the brain as being kind of conditioned towards always looking out for the worst. But human brains are kind of weird because when our dogs and our cats, they look around and their bellies are filled and they're, they know they have a safe, you know, and everything's safe in their environment, what do they do? They go take a nap on the couch. Right. Human brains, we don't do that. <laughs> you know, everything is fine. We have a roof over our head. We have our families and everything else. And we're still complaining about something. We're worrying, constantly worrying about future things that may or may not happen. And unfortunately for the human brain is that other parts of the brain take every thought that we have and acts as if it's actually real, even though it's not. So you have to train yourself to constantly step back, ask yourself, is this negative thought or rumination a truly valid negativity? Am I, is my survival really being threatened? And if not, you have to interrupt that thought. And then the same is true with a positive thought. Let's say you want to feel peace or happiness or compassion. You're going to have to repeat it over and over and over again. So far we know you're going to have to practice a minimum of 12 minutes a day, every day. But in eight weeks, you'll begin to see these types of structural and functional changes in your brain. And it doesn't matter what religion you are or whether you believe or disbelieve in God. Right. So God, for many people, is that positive, is that, that, that comfort. So that's why the name of the book, you know, how God changes your brain. It, it's God, but it doesn't, it can be what, how you perceive God, or it could be spirit, or it could be just a meditation of happiness. It doesn't have to be any particular religion or anything like that, right? Well, this is what we have found out. 
everyone seems to assume that their private notion of God is shared by other people in the world. But our research has shown we've collected all kinds of adult drawings of God. We've asked for descriptions and definitions of their of God and what their spiritual experiences are. And guess what everybody has in common? Virtually nothing. <laughs> Each person, it turns out, has such a unique concept of God that we get into a lot of trouble in the public arena because we take our private notions of God, which feel very good to us, assuming that we have a positive view of God, and then we're assuming that somebody else has that same inner view, and we don't realize that they may have a totally different notion of God. And then we get into trouble because then we have dissonance. We don't have cooperation, and people start arguing about which internal idea and belief about God is more true or right from each other. And this creates neural dissonance. This creates conflict. And we're looking at these types of meditations as ways to undermine conflict in the public arena. Right. So what happens is if when we take this from the private view of God to the public view of God, that has some disadvantages, doesn't it? We get into a lot of trouble. And so one way of looking at religion is that religion attempts to take a group of individuals with dozens of different partial experiences of this something that we call God, and tries to orchestrate it, tries to regulate it, tries to get everybody to agree on the same definition. But God, as a definition, has never been satisfied. Thus, we have thousands of books on it. And God as an experience is such a personal matter that the more you have an experience of this thing that other people call God, the more you realize that the word itself doesn't even make any sense. It's something beyond words. It's an experience that is either utterly meaningful or utterly meaningless. Right, right. And, you know, it's it's interesting to me that we're live. you know, we live in a country where we are supposed to have freedom of religion and freedom of spiritual practices. And unfortunately, sometimes some religions really chastise other religions, and that takes away our, our right, our private right to believe as we wish to believe. And it also interferes with probably some of the neurological benefits, I would imagine. Well, I'm going to argue differently and say that most people's notion about religion is rather negative for the same reason I mentioned earlier, that the brain tends to focus. We can have a hundred positive statements about religion and a hundred positive experiences from religion, and yet the one that is negative is the one that ends up on the front page news. Right, right. And then we focus and ruminate on that. But if you really look closely at the whole history of religion, it has done far more good than bad. And I'm a person who doesn't particularly believe in God. Yeah. And yet religious institutions help us to focus deeply, to go inwards. They're one of the few organizations that ask us the question, what do we deeply value? And so the problem is, is that the most powerful organization in the world, religion, for helping us even look at our values, is not the most important organization in the world that we have to address. So we would like to be able to bring value-oriented business practices into the economic realm, right. to teach business people how you can use contemplative forms of meditation to find 
business values that make it more socially acceptable, more cooperative, ways of doing business that actually enhance uh, the world as well. And right. even Bill Gates, I mean, he's created this thing called creative capitalism. And that means that you deliberately, as a corporation, pair yourself up with a nonprofit organization, with other types of groups, and work together and find a way of taking just a small part of your profit and to use some part of your service or product to help those people who are really in need. Right. And, you know, it's like the corporate mystic, you know. Yeah. You know, we can we can bring the, you know, more spirituality into the workplace without infringing on anybody else's religion. There are a lot of commonalities in all religions of love, of respect, of deep caring, and like you said, of meditative practices. Most religions do have that going within to commune with God. So it, it makes a lot of sense to me. We're speaking right now with a, the author and a, a wonderful brilliant man who's also a professor and the name of the book is how god changes your brain breakthrough findings from a leading neuroscientist and this is by andrew nurberg and mark robert waldman who we're speaking with right now and mark has written 11 books and this is his new book that he's co-authored and he's also a therapist and an associate fellow at the Center for Spirituality and the Mind at the University of Pennsylvania. You know, I have to ask you, Mark, how did that that uh, center get started? It, it's amazing that they would have that at a public university, isn't it? Actually, there are many of these types of centers at universities throughout the country. It's very, very popular. This particular center at the University of Pennsylvania was established by... Andy Newberg, my colleague and my boss, and it's actually a prize element of the University of Pennsylvania. It's a very, it's a very highly respected project because it's all, um, you know, we bring in people from other universities from all the different disciplines. We get together and we share. We sit down for a lunch. There, you know, there could be a minister, a theologist, a neuroscientist, a psychologist, a sociologist somebody from political science, and we work together to find a way of making use of the best of all of our insights to find a way of benefiting the world. Well, that is fascinating. We're speaking with Mark Robert Waldman, who is the author of How God Changes Your Brain, and let me remind you that this week is our annual fun drive. Now, KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net is a nonprofit radio station. And we pledge, Lloyd and I, as the host and engineer of Privacy Piracy, we pledge our commitment to bring you great guests um, like Mark Waldman, who is terrific here, and, and others. And we bring you great guests and wonderful shows, and our DJs bring you terrific music. So please pledge your tax-deductible donation to continue Privacy Piracy and all the shows that air 24-7. Call right now at 949-824-5824 or 949-UCI-KUCI. And there are people that will be answering the phone. Or you can even call our office toll-free at 800-725-0807 and we will help you find your pledge gift. Now, you will get a pledge gift back from us depending on how much you donate, and we 
are so appreciative for anything that you can donate. Make your tax-deductible donation. You'll also get a letter that tells you that you received this tax deduct that you um, got the tax-deductible donation. So please remember when you call to mention Pledging for Privacy Piracy. So we thank you so much. Let us bring this to you, these wonderful shows, every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. I'm your host, Mari Frank, on Privacy Piracy. So let me ask you, Mark, is there a neurological mechanism that pulls us toward privacy or openness? I think that we are always conflicted, that there is part of our brain that drives us towards being private, selfish, greedy, and another part of our brain that demands that we become cooperative and generous and interactive with other people. We do not have very good skills at doing very much by ourselves alone. We are social creatures. But we have human brains that are so complex that it literally takes 20 years of development before we can actually learn how to get beyond our selfishness and cooperate with other people. Wow. So um, do you perceive privacy as something that is healthy for us, or is it not healthy? I mean, is is it healthy for us to have some uh, private moments or some information that we keep private? Is that something that you think is... I'm saying that the human brain is a mess, that part (laughs) of us is being pulled into privacy, that we need that space and time so we don't be totally pulled away you know, from our own goals and desires. And yet another part of us demands that we cooperate with each other. And to me, when you look at the human brain, it looks like one of the worst created brains on the planet. I'd rather have a brain of an ant with 10,000 neurons. It can (laughs) build all kinds of creative devices. It gets along great. It does war wonderfully. It lives peacefully with each other. We have 100 billion neurons. And I think we actually do much better than the news portrays because all I do is get on the freeway, and I'm amazed that, for the most part, 99.9% of all people are following the rules. So the rules help our brain coordinate and cooperate with each other. But the weird thing is is that if you're under the age of 23, you barely can understand that rules help you get along with each other and help you get your own personal needs met. Yeah, you know, I noticed a, a profound difference when my daughter turned turned 24. <laughs> I mean, I really did. I could see a huge maturity level. It was like overnight. So and th- that was pretty amazing to me. And when I read that in your book, I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yes. And unfortunately, people like Piaget, also back from the 1960s, used to put forth the notion that very few human beings ever developed their social skills beyond that of a 12-year-old. And unfortunately, that seems to be rather true. So again, we come back to focusing and meditation and doing deep contemplation on what you truly value, that these types of meditation techniques may help organize the brain in certain ways. And it also looks to us from the research with been collected, like, for example, from the Mayo Clinic. This is a 30-year longitudinal study in the Duke University, a 40-year-old longitudinal study, that people who focus on optimistic and positive thoughts live several years longer. Well, that makes sense to me. 
That makes a lot of sense. You have something to live for, too. <laughs> but it suggests in the yeah. arena that these Tea Party individuals and people who are using their anger to create change are not only destroying their own brains, but they're destroying the brains to anyone who listens to them. So our advice from both Andy and I and from other neuroscientists is actually don't listen to somebody who is using angry rhetoric, whether they're coming from the pulpit or the political arena. It will rivet your attention, but it will actually damage those neurons that are responsible for controlling and regulating your emotions. Yeah, and we have some speakers here on campus that come from off campus that rile people up. It is it is pretty terrifying. And then those those go up on YouTube, and uh, I have to tell you, it's been uh, quite disturbing. Yeah. Now, should meditation and prayer be conducted privately and kept out of the public secular spheres? I remember when I learned transcendental meditation, we used to get in a room and we would all meditate together. And for me, I have to tell you, Mark, it seemed like that room was vibrating. It was pretty amazing. The problem is, is that when you engage with a religious organization or a spiritual organization and you develop a strategy that really helps a lot of people, you also tend to become true believers. And this is also something we need to know about the human brain. The more deeply we, have, the more deeply we hold one belief, the more we're neurologically um, inclined to reject and even oppose any belief system that differs with us. So what happens is that transcendental meditators begin to believe that they have the secret and the truth to the secret to happiness. And then you bump into a Hindu meditator or a Buddhist meditator or, you know, a Christian person who has discovered, you know, the wonder, you know, the wonderfulness of taking Jesus into your heart and soul. And everyone says, no, this is the truth. No, that is the truth. We have to begin to teach people that, again, these spiritual truths, these deep experiences that we have that profoundly improve our health and our brain and our bodies are very unique for each person. They all work. There is no one right way. The other ways are not necessarily wrong. Only those types of religions and those types of practices that say, I am right and you are wrong. Right. Those are the dangerous ones to society and to your own personal, private world. Right. There's, like they say, there's many paths to, to God, to that center, to that, that universal truth. So... You know, I enjoy uh, reading your columns in the Science of Mind magazine, and one of the nice things about the Science of Mind magazine is that it says that everybody is it's inclusive rather than exclusive. It doesn't matter what uh, religious persuasion you're from or whatever. It's that, that uh, connection to whatever you perceive as God or that universal truth, which is really wonderful. So I appreciate it. That's how I found you in that magazine, by the way, and I had to get the book. We're very impressed with some of the new thought in contemporary churches because they're opening the doors wide open to embracing science and a wide variety of pluralistic religions and beliefs into their groups. Unitarians are included in, in that, unity people. But even what's happening within the Catholic Church is rather amazing to me. There's been a whole resurgence of, of within the Catholic community of returning to the mystical practices of the 10th and 11th and 12th century, where, again, you are going within simply to contemplate deep inner truths and values. And when you 
are around some of these people, the Jesuits and the Trappist monks. They radiate such a sense of kindness, and they do it towards everyone. And I keep thinking, wow, we have something that we can truly learn from all of these great mystical and deep spiritual practitioners. If they are wonderful to be around, we know they are doing something that is good for society. Yeah, you think about the Dalai Lama and you read his writings. Or, you know, I was in Thailand a few years ago and I got to meet several of the monks and went into some of the, the Thai temples. And again, that same spiritual oneness, that, that kindness, that, you know, Thailand is the land of smiles anyway. But, you know, it does give you that sense that they're really centered. They're really connected to the universe or connected to God or, or whatever you want to call it. But they are centered and grounded and really uh, wonderful human beings. So, yeah, it makes sense. I would so, say that they are connected to themselves. They are connected to their deeper innermost values, those values that make life worth living. Right. And in that kind of language, that can appeal to and be embraced by both the secular and non-secular communities. That is a framework that we can study in science and in neuroscience. And that, to us, is the key to cooperation and getting along with others, when we just need to keep practicing it over and over again. So we bring our private spirituality into our actions, into our voice, into our dialogue, we speak slowly. We hold a compassionate thought with inside of us. We look with a half smile and a soft gaze at the people that we're talking to, and it creates what's called neural resonance. And the other person's brain begins to feel your peacefulness, your compassion, your happiness, your satisfaction. That's a wonderful thing to spread through your family and through society. So how do we do this with... Um you know, when we have the, the you versus us, we have so many religions out there or so many practitioners out there who really, you know, pretty much say this is the way and the only way. If you believe in anything else, you're going to go to hell. So, um, <laughs> Well, remember that the, you know, that really is the small minority. That's less than 10% of the people out there who act that way. But they gather 90% of our attention and the news. Because, again, it sounds negative, hostile. It sounds like a threat. So, of course, our brain pays attention to that person. Yes. So how do we, how do we enlighten them when many of them are leaders of, of large churches? I know we have some here in Orange County that are like that. Let me describe to you an experiment that we've been conducting and teaching at, to the executive MBA students at Loyola Marymount University. Okay. In the very first class, that I taught, because I actually wasn't going to be teaching my executive communication program for several months, I said, I only have one homework assignment for you over the next two months. Each day when you wake up in the morning, ask yourself the following question. What is my deepest, innermost value? And write down the one or two or three words that come to your mind. You don't have to do this for more than 60 seconds. You can do it longer if you wanted to. But just keep doing that once each day and just keep a, an informal log to see if those words or phrases change. Well, about two months down the road, they got their second homework assignment, which was simply to write one-page description of what that was like. Did they think it was a bunch of baloney? Did they find it interesting? Did they find it boring? Did they learn anything about themselves? Totally, 
totally open-ended questionnaire. In other words, we, we weren't putting any pressure on them to do anything about this. We weren't imposing any specific belief system. We were just asking them to pay attention to what their own deepest, innermost belief was. I'll give you an example. Everyone had the same experience, but my favorite letter came from uh, a student. And all these students, they're already executives, so they're all between the ages of 30 to 45, running companies and corporations, and they're going back to school to get the training uh, necessary to run a corporate entity. My favorite one came from this one individual who said his first reaction was, what kind of BS is this? I mean, what in the world does inner values have to do with financial planning? (laughs) And as he described in his one-page description, by the time he got through about, about three or four weeks into it, he began to, as everybody else did, automatically compare their inner values to the values of their company. Now, I thought I was going to be teaching this in my class. <laughs> I didn't have to teach it in my class. <laughs> the students were already paying attention to that. And he ended his letter by saying, you know what? I think this is an exercise that should be taught to every MBA student in America. How wonderful. Well, that's your next book, huh? <laughs> yes, actually it is. <laughs> well, you know, I teach negotiations and conflict management at UCI. And one of the things that I always teach, and I think I have very similar values to you from reading your book. I'm very much connected to that and very involved in science of mind. And when I teach my negotiations class, it's not about us versus them or you versus me. It's all about what commonalities do we have and changing. We we spend a lot of time on changing negative words to positive words. Yeah. For example, if if someone says, well, this is really a problem, you respond by saying, yeah, well, this is a challenge we're going to overcome. You know? What is, you know, what is the solution? What can we do right. together to come to a solution, not right. just pointing out what the problem is? You're absolutely correct. Right, and, and changing those negative words to positive words. So, you know, a problem doesn't have to be a problem. It's an opportunity to resolve, a pro- you know, a, a challenge. So challenge sounds more exciting than problem does. <laughs> Now, let me it tell sounds you like a, a brand new study that isn't even yet published yet. Oh, good. This was done with highly anxious and highly depressed individuals. Just seeing a list of negative words made them more anxious and depressed. Just seeing a list of positive words made them less anxious and depressed. Interesting. You know, I give, and I'll send it to you. I have it in, in this little textbook that I that I made for my students. But And they're all out there practicing, you know, either law or they're practicing as business people as well, and they're getting conflict resolution uh, certificates. But um, I give them a whole list of positive words, and I said, keep this up by your computer. So when you're writing letters, when you're talking to somebody on the phone, use these positive words because they will transform the way that people are thinking about the situation. <laughs> so it's uh, now it's good to know that there is some scientific research to, to back what I've been telling them. There's not some scientific uh, data on it. There's a ton of it, and it falls under the field of neuroeconomics. Hmm. For example, you're doing a fundraiser right now. Neuroeconomics research shows that each time you choose to donate anything, your service, your product, your money, to something that you like. We can actually record in the brain the positive results that that has in your brain. You feel better about your life. Now, if you're forced to donate, no, it's not any good. So if we just go by the scientific evidence, 
we're going to encourage individuals to be generous in whatever way feels right to them, to whomever they feel they want to give this to. And then we're going to bombard them with study after study. I mean, there are all of these studies where you basically play computer games, and the human brain is so fast in, in recognizing facial recognitions. The moment you notice that the other person is being stingy or greedy, you're going to act punitively towards them. You're going to become more selfish and less giving. If you perceive the other person as being kind and generous towards you, you automatically become kind and generous towards them. And we can measure this. We can actually see where in the brain that's changing. Wow, what a perfect thing to say for our pledge drive. (laughs) So if you just listen to our guru, Mark Waldman, who is the author of How God Changes Your Brain, and you saw that by giving and donating to things you you love, it makes you feel good. So if you love to listen to this show, if you have the opportunity to download our podcast and listen to our fabulous people that take their time, their free time to come and speak to us about fascinating things, then it's going to be good for you too. You can give pledge and of course you'll get a tax deduction as well. And we've been thinking about taxes in recent weeks. So please pledge your tax deductible donation to continue this show, Privacy Piracy, and also all the other great shows if you love to listen to our music 24-7 as well. And you're going to even receive a gift back from us, which is even greater. And you'll have the joy of giving. So you can call at 949-UCI-KUCI, that's 949-824-5824. If you want to call our office specifically, you can call toll-free 800-725-0807, and we will actually help you take your credit card and walk you through what the pledge gifts are and make sure that you get a pledge gift that really meets what you would love. So please remember when you call to mention you're pledging for privacy piracy and you're learning a lot and you're enjoying it and you're giving back and we sure appreciate it. You know, Lloyd and I are volunteers ourselves. Everybody here at the station is a volunteer and we do what we love and we hope that you enjoy what you get to listen to. So we are talking right now with the author of How God Changes Your Brain. We're speaking with Mark Robert Waldman. And he is terrific. He is a therapist. He is an associate fellow at the Center for Spirituality and the Mind at the University of Pennsylvania. And he currently conducts research with Andrew Newberg, MD, on the neurological correlation of beliefs, morality, spiritual practices. He is wonderful. He's also an adjunct faculty member at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, where he just was talking about the communications tools that he prepares for executive MBA programs and his teaching. So we're so thrilled to, to have him with us today. So let's get back to to talk about some of the things in your book. You talk about meditation without God. So so for those people who don't want to believe in God, let's talk about how um, they can improve their memory and cognition and what can they do. Ah, okay. So you would like me to take all of your listeners right now and have me arouse their precuneus in 60 (laughs) seconds or less? (laughs) Now, I understand that the question itself is going to grow dendrites in your dorsolateral prefrontal <laughs> cortex. Guess what? Even though you're going to get your precuneus aroused, it's legal, even if Bill Clinton does it. <laughs> so, 
What is the percuneus? The percuneus is part of your brain that is actually looked at as one of the core elements of consciousness itself. When you are awake, it is the most active part of your brain. And we have discovered, quite by accident, a technique that only takes literally uh, 30 to 60 seconds to do that creates greater consciousness in your brain, greater social empathy, and relaxes you faster than any other technique that we know of out there. And you probably know what it is because you've read the book, but I'll tell your audience what uh, it is. Okay, good. I was going to uh, ask you, did uh, you know? I actually think I'm going to yeah, me give too. you a, an example of what it is. This is a little bit of a, a hint. I know, um, and it's yeah. catching, too. <laughs> and it is catching, and it is and it's a form of neural empathy. It's called yawning. Exactly. And if you want, I will send you 43 documented studies to substantiate that if you simply take the next 30 seconds and yawn, even if you don't feel like it, uh-huh. for most people, you're going to feel this profound sense of relaxation that actually keeps you more awake and aware. So you yawn because you are tired and need to be staying awake. That's why that your students are yawning early in the morning. One of two reasons. Either they stayed up too late or you really are boring and they're still trying to stay awake so that they can pass their test later on in the week. Right. Well, that's fascinating. And how, how does this all work with maybe helping us to prevent Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? What we are finding is, again, that anytime you do a concentrated form of focus, on a word or a sound or a movement that has deep personal meaning to you. It actually improves various aspects of the memory circuits in your brain. So in theory, and what our most recent study has shown, yes, you can improve uh, memory and cognition. You can slow down the aging process. But objectively speaking, not by very much. And this is true for all of medicine. Quite interestingly, uh, the five major uh, pharmaceutical companies have agreed to share their secrets under the auspices of the National Institutes of Health to find out why the placebo effect is getting stronger, so strong that they can't even pass and get approval for new drugs. Now, to us, what that means as a placebo effect it means that if you believe in the treatment that you're taking, if you believe in your doctor or therapist or your friend or your family member, it is that positive belief system that boosts your immune system that can have as much as a 25 to 95% success rate at treating nearly every form of disease and illness that's out there. You know, I remember reading Bernie Siegel's books. I'm sure you know who he is, Bernie yeah. Siegel, MD. And he, his books were wonderful about how he would have these, he, he became very spiritual, you know, through his practice. And he would talk about his patients who, when they really believed that a pill was going to work, they would do great. And he had this one guy who did fabulous. And then something in the paper came out and said that it really wasn't working. And then the guy died. So the, the incredible power of the brain, you know, when they talk about placebo, placebo, just if you believe it, like you just said, it, it, it is reality for that person, right? 
Yes, it very much is reality. So it is our positive beliefs that keep us alive. And the study, the person that you mentioned that, yes, when the information came out and the drug, the experimental drug that he was being given turned out to uh, be stated in the paper that it was not beneficial, all of his tumors and cancers came back. Yes. This is a rare situation. I'm not saying the placebo, you know, that, that you can use your mind to cure yourself of various diseases, but I'm saying the mind is actually the most important key element you have. Right. And you it have cre- to well, believe in the doctor and the treatment. If you disbelieve in it, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to damage yourself. And, and our body really is healing. Like, you know, you get a cut and then it takes a couple days and it's gone without you taking any pills. Your body has the power to heal itself in so many ways. It, it That's the way it works. Yes, and, and the pills are far less effective, and now the pharmaceutical companies are admitting that. Yes. But the cool thing is, is that if you take a placebo along with your regular medication, and even if you know it's a placebo, the medication is more effective. Yeah. Yeah, if you believe that it's going to work. Yeah, the size of the pill. No, actually, placebos actually work with mice and horses as well. Ah, do you think it's because we're giving it to them, to them and we, we're we telling them it's going to work? Well, in the situation with working with animals, what we think that's happening is that you're introducing a foreign experience, a foreign substance. It could be simply the injection of the needle itself. In placebo research, we know that if you have a needle put into you, whether there's anything inside of the needle or not makes no difference. You'll get better. Your Your knee will actually heal just as fast with a fake injection as with a real injection. Mm. Same with acupuncture. It doesn't seem to matter where you actually put the needles. Now, of course, this is going to push a lot of people's buttons because they're going to say, no, there's all of this, you know, you know, decades and centuries of research. But no, old research is not catching the point. The catching the point is that the healing is taking place because you believe in the treatment, yes. not necessarily in the treatment itself. But I don't want anybody running out there and then just trying to use their mind to heal themselves from a bacterial infection. Right, right. you gotta, you got to use science and your mind. It uh, makes more sense to me. But you have to come back to always trusting your intuition. Yes. Even if your intuition goes against common knowledge or scientific knowledge, if you go against your intuitive gut-level response, that's probably the most dangerous thing you could do. Especially if you're meditating and you have that you've really developed that intuition better, then you've got to follow it. I know last summer uh, my dog got cancer, and it was a hemangiosarcoma, which is a very, very bad cancer for a dog. And he unfortunately uh, got it under his arm, and he had the surgery. And then afterwards they said he's got to have chemo. Well, the chemo made him so sick that I said, you know what? I'm not going to do the chemo. I'm going to do everything else. I'm going to do supplements. I'm going to tell him he's healing. I'm going to do Reiki. I'm going to do everything on this dog. And if you saw this dog, you would never know he was sick. He acts like a puppy. He's eight years old. And knock on wood, thank God, he's doing great. And he didn't have any, you know, we had to stop the chemo within like a week. So, you know, I I think that he believed that he was going to make. I kept telling him, you're a healing dog. You're all better. You're healing. And maybe... The fact that both of us believed it, it happened. So whatever worked, I don't care, right? Right, and that's what I'm saying is that most everything that we do beyond our belief system may only be a few percentages more effective than the belief itself. 
So the drugs may add a little bit to the picture, and it may not. So for some people, it'll make it worse. For others, it'll make it better. And for most of us, it barely can beat the placebo effect. Yes. Now, you've also developed a new kind of interpersonal dialogue called compassionate communication, and it uses meditation techniques to improve the relationships and bring peacefulness. Tell us all about that. This is a very, very simple exercise. It's kind of like reverse engineering all the meditation practices. When you talk about public versus private, most of the time when people think about prayer and meditation, it's a very private affair. You go off in solitude, in silence, and you pray and you meditate to yourself. And we asked ourselves the question, what would happen if you took this meditation state where you're breathing deeply and you're focusing on relaxation and you're just attempting to bring yourself into the present moment, staying relaxed and peaceful, alert and aware, what would happen if you did that simultaneously when dialoguing with another person? And so we created an exercise called Compassionate Communication, and we even created a CD that you can, uh, it's both in our book, we talk about how you can do it, and then we, and then we have a CD that you can order as well to help guide you through the exercise. But it's very simple, I'll just explain it. You take a few minutes and you breathe and you relax your body, and you hold a compassionate thought about yourself and about the other person who you are about to engage in dialogue with. And when you feel that you are feeling kind of that warm, fuzzy, loving feeling inside, maybe you're thinking about your son or your daughter or a dog or, you know, some great, wonderful experience you've had in the past. And what you want to do is hold on to that thought and feeling. And then when you engage, when you look at the other person, again, you put a half smile on your face, you keep a soft gaze in your eyes, and you specifically speak slower like I'm doing now. Research shows that if you go from normal speech to the type of slow speech that you're hearing now, the other person's comprehension increases and their body physiologically relaxes. And then we add one new thing, one very odd twist to this compassionate communication exercise. We ask you to only speak for 20 seconds and then to stop and pause, to go back into yourself and relax, and then listen deeply as the other person speaks for only 20 seconds. Why 20 seconds? Because it turns out that the conscious part of your brain, your working memory, can only hold 20 seconds of information before it downloads it. So if you're sitting there and you're chattering to the other person for two, three, four minutes, and then they respond and they, only, they are only able to hang on to 20 seconds of what you said, they may be focused on the 20 seconds that was irrelevant. But if you shorten your speech down and you speak for 20 seconds and then you let the other person respond for 20 seconds, we find that you can take highly conflicted marital couples and bring them through a problem uh, in less than 20 minutes, we find that we can take this into conflict resolution areas in businesses, in communities, in societies. It's a very, very powerful exercise. It's so simple to do. Right. So do you have a timer for the 20 seconds, or how do you do the 20 seconds so everybody uh, abides by that? 
Well, yes, you can set you can set a timer. You can remind you can remind each other, but that's why we put it down on onto a CD because we think it helps to have the CD guide you through it. So the CD guides you through the relaxation meditation thing, and you can do this with an actual person, or you can do it with an imaginary person in your mind. And then after about seven minutes, then you begin the dialogue, and then what you hear on the CD in the silence is a bell simply rings every uh, 30 seconds to remind you to stop, even in mid-sentence. And so, you know, we do it as a training exercise, and it works wonderfully. If if we we, we go into a room filled with 200 people, we ask people to pair up with somebody they don't know. And we can guide the person through this little 12-minute exercise, and we can measure them before and afterwards, and we get an 11% improvement in social empathy and intimacy. So that, that helps the parties to really hear each other, and since they can only download that 20 seconds, yeah. they can absorb it and then reflect back to the, another, to the other person. Fascinating. And, yeah. Well, that, that's good. When you talk this slow in between each of those spaces you have a you have the time to actually see all the noisiness going on in your mind all the idle chatter that distracts us from having an intimate conversation with another person so it's a wonderful experiment to play with and it can feel very weird and very unusual but it only takes a few times to train yourself how to listen empathically to the other person. That creates what's called neural resonance, and that's the key to cooperation with other people. Well, what a wonderful way to end is just to learn to do that 20 seconds low and slow and really listen. We sure appreciate all your great work, and we love the book, How God Changes Your Brain. And we so appreciate all the wonderful research that you're doing, and we're going to have to have you back again. I would love it. Well, we also thank you for saying such great things about the uh, about giving and donating because that makes everybody feel good. It makes our station feel good. It makes the giver and the receiver feel good. So thank you, Mark Waldman. You're welcome, and oh. don't forget to yawn. I will. That's right. Okay. Thank you so much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And again, this is our annual fun drive. We pledge our commitment to bring you great public affairs shows and terrific music. So please have fun, give of yourself, receive, and pledge your tax-deductible donation to continue Privacy Piracy and all the other great shows. Call right now. 949-824-5824 949-824-5824 or K, uh, UCI, KUCI. You'll even receive a gift back from us at KUCI. So don't forget, make your tax-deductible donation right now. And please remember when you call to mention that you're pledging for privacy piracy. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.